I don't know who you are, but I'm guessing there are some of you here just by percentages and odds and the amount of people we have in the room this morning. I'm guessing among us there are at least a few Star Wars fans. And I don't just mean fans, I mean like enthusiasts, like the kind of people that already have their tickets for next month when the final movie of the Skywalker saga is going to come out. And so you Star Wars enthusiasts, you fanatics in the room, I want you to imagine trying to convert someone to, to share your fanaticism, right? And you're trying to explain to them, you know, well, the story behind Star Wars. You're trying to get them excited, but when you talk about things like the Force, or you say the word Jedi, their eyes just kind of glaze over, and they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's going to be kind of a tough sell, right? There might be other reasons why it's a tough sell, like poor character development and bad dialogue, but I mean... Besides those points, I mean, unless this person grasps these central concepts, they're not going to get it. If you're trying to get somebody to read through the Lord of the Rings with you, and they think the ring is just a normal piece of, of jewelry, probably not going to be compelled to read much farther. Or trying to get somebody to watch all the Rocky movies, and they don't know what boxing is. Or, hey, let's read through Tale of Two Cities together, London, Paris. I have no clue what's going on here, Right? There's certain key concepts that are essential, whether it's a movie or a book, to understanding what in the world is going on. Well, today, as we continue our study through the Gospel of John, we're going to be introduced to two words that are essential themes throughout the book. And if we don't understand these, we're going to have a hard time tracking. And I want to remind us today that we're not just talking about some book or some show or some movie, right? I mean, you might say, hey, I don't care about Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, whatever it might be, and that's totally fine. But here this morning, we're talking about your life. We're talking about your soul. And the words that we're going to be looking at today in John 1, 4, and 5 are life and light. And if I asked you, hey, for your life, for your time in this world, would you like your experience to be filled with life and light or death and darkness? I'm going to guess we're going to get about 100% in favor of life and light, right? That's what we want in our lives. But what do those things mean? How in the world do we get them? Where do they come from? These are important for every single one of us. So please take your Bibles and open them up to the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at verses 4 and 5 this morning. John 1, 4 and 5. And I'm going to, especially since it ties in so well together, I'm going to start back in verse 1 to give us a little bit of an idea of where we've been and read right into verses 4 and 5. Follow along in John 1 as I read, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we're going to look really at four direct phrases this morning. In Him, which we remind ourselves from last week, it's referring back to the Word, who we know is Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ was life. Phrase one. Number two, the life was the light of men. 
this light shines in the darkness. And then the final phrase, and the darkness has not overcome it. And we're going to follow these verse breakdowns as they link together and start by looking at verse 4 where we're introduced to these themes of life and light. Now these words have broad meaning and become broad themes, but I think here in verse 4, it's trying to say something specific. There's largely a continuation of verse 3. Let's look again at verse 3, which says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We saw last week that verse is reminding us of the deity of Christ. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And Jesus Christ was used by God to create everything that is created. He is creator. He is God. And now it's saying in verse 4, in him was life. So we understand this phrase. We're going to see it is a, another strong argument showing us the deity of Christ. In him was life. They're saying that Jesus is self-existent. He has life within himself. That's different from everyone in this room. We had to get life from somewhere. We were given life, and someday we will lose it. Jesus, no, he already had it. In him was life. And that's very a fundamental thing of understanding the question, who is God, right? And it's even something that God brings in when he declares this is who I am. Even that statement, I am, we've referred to it the last couple weeks, where that comes from in the Bible, Moses and the burning bush. And it's going to keep coming up throughout the Gospel of John. So I think it's time we finally turned there. So take your Bibles and open them up. Let's go all the way back to the law, the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Go to Exodus chapter 3. As you're turning there, no doubt this is a familiar scene to many of you, Hollywood loves to make movies about the book of Exodus. And this is the scene of the burning bush. Moses, tending the flocks, he sees the, the, this bush that's on fire, yet not being consumed. He's intrigued. He goes to see what's going on. He hears the voice of God from the bush. It tells him, take off your sandals, because you are on holy ground. And then God tells him his mission. Hey, I have seen the suffering of my people in Egypt. And I've heard their cries, and Moses, I'm sending you to go get them. Well, then Moses, he starts with the excuses. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses, you're going to be back here again someday worshiping with all the people, and that's exactly what happened. But Moses, he's not sold yet. So verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to this people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses says, God, what's your name? And God says, I am who I am. 
And even if you look, especially if you have the English Standard Version, or most English translations do this as well. If you look at verse 15, it says, God said also to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. And then it says, the Lord. And if you look carefully, especially in the English Standard Version, you'll see Lord, they're, they're all capital letters there. Not if you, if you can see that, if you, you're from that. Embassy. All right, you're seeing that, right? What does that mean? Well, when we see that in English translations, all of them capital letters, it's referring to the Hebrew word Yahweh, which was what they understood to be the name of God. And even they protected this name. Many times they wouldn't even utter it out loud. But that name, Yahweh, comes from this revelation of God in Exodus 3 where he declares, I am who I am. That even when God reveals his name, he's highlighting that he is self-existent, that he alone requires life from no one. And now Jesus, he's going to be making claims all throughout the Gospel of John that he shares in that divinity, that he also is self-existent. Look at some of these verses that we're going to see Jesus say. Look at John 5, 25 and 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus has life in himself. and No one, he, he didn't get it from somewhere. It never started. He has it. And he proves that point with his resurrection. And he talks about it in John 10, 18. It says, no one takes it, talking about his life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. No human can talk this way. No human can say, I have the authority to lay down my life. And I have the authority to take it up again. In Jesus is life. He is God. And the next phrase in John 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now remember, 1 John 1, 4 is picking up right where 1 John 1, or sorry, not 1 John, John 1, 3 left off, and that's with creation. That Before creation was, Jesus was already there. And in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Remember Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, what? Let there be light. Let there be light. This is how creation started. And here, verse 4, I think specifically, he's highlighting Jesus is God. He is the creator. He is the one who gives the light. But these words, life and light, they're words that are going to be used all throughout this gospel. And they're words that capture more than just the deity of Christ or creation. The word life, John is going to use 36 times in this book. Many times it will be paired with the word eternal, eternal life. I mean, you could go to a bookstore this afternoon, you'll, you'll find whole thick books called What is Life? Where even scientists are trying to explain, well, what exactly do we mean? What, what do we mean when we're talking about life? It's actually a hard word to nail down. And John uses it many times in a broad sense, not just talking about biological life, but talking about spiritual life, talking about eternal life, which it's clear he means 
isn't just, you know, living forever. It's a depth of life, a richness of life that God intends for those who believe in Him to experience. The word light is also frequently used and many times used in opposition to the word darkness. We understand light is very connected with truth, both what is intellectually true and right and also what is morally true, that what is holy and righteous. This is what is symbolized by the word life. And we're seeing from the very beginning, and we'll see it all throughout, that these words, life and light, are summed up in Jesus. He is where they come from. Jesus will even say, I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the source of these things. So Jesus, he's the source of meaning in life. But he's the source of purpose in life. He's the source of truth. He's the source of holiness and righteousness. So we need to look to him. Point number one this morning, look to Jesus for meaning and direction. Look to Jesus for meaning and direction. And that has to start with the context of this verse and the specific thing is stating with looking to Jesus as creator. That he is the one where life comes from. If you've got some time to kill this afternoon, open up Google on your computer or your phone and just type in, where did life come from? And you know what you're going to find out? They have no idea, right? I mean, you're going to see some words there like phrases like primordial soup and amino acids and you're going to come across YouTube videos or articles that theorize where it all came from. You know, maybe there was some primordial pond and some spark of energy that somehow started these amino acids, or maybe it came from some hole at the bottom of the ocean, or maybe it came from somewhere else, some meteorite that landed here with life already on it, or, and some of the leading scientists of the last generations have suggested this, maybe it was seeded here from life that came from somewhere else, right? The, some of the brightest minds of the world, hey, where did life come from? aliens, right? This is the best that they've got. You know, sometimes when you get on Google and you, you're looking for a specific answer and you type in, you know, hey, how old is so-and-so and like a box comes up at the top of the screen when you hit enter that has the official answer in it. And I wish when you went to Google and said, where did life come from? A box popped up that said Jesus Christ, because that's the truth, right? He is the source of life. But here's the problem. When the world rejects him as creator, then there's all these other big questions that they have to answer that they also have no clue for. Questions like, why am I here? What should I be doing in life? And, and they have no answers, and it gets even more depressing. It has to begin with Jesus. He's the creator. He is the source of life. And we need to see this is so much more than just academic you know, this whole Jesus, you know, the Son and the Father, they're, they're self-existent, right? You're like, well, that kind of seems, you know, pretty heady, Pastor. No, this is relevant to every single one of us. Anybody in the room thankful that God keeps his promises? Amen, right? He is a God who keeps his promises. How can he do that? Because he has life in himself. Do you know that really, technically, none of us can actually make promises? Because there is no guarantee that you will keep it. I mean, most of the time, we're like, well, maybe a pretty high probability, but here's the problem. Do you control your life? Can you lay down your life and take it up again? No, you can't. 
you can't promise that your life won't be lost today, right? You, you can't make those guarantees. God can because he is, he was, he always will be. This self-existence of God stuff is pretty important to you and your daily life. And we have to look to him because he's the only one that can give us help because he is eternal and we are so not. Love this verse, Psalm 121, 1 and 2 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We look to our creator. We look to the one where life comes from for help. And I don't know that there should be anywhere in the world that it's easier to obey this passage than right here where we live, right? Where every day we can look up and see the hills and say, hey, where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. A new day dawns, we're full of anxiety, not sure what to do, and we see the sun rising, and we look at the hills and say, oh yeah, my help comes from the Lord. I know Jesus. I know the one who gives life and light. And it extends to us when we think about questions of looking for meaning. What is life all about? Where is satisfaction going to come from? Where is purpose going to come from? Well, let's turn together to Psalm 36. We'll look at a couple different psalms, and we're going to see that these images of life and light, they're not new to the Apostle John. These are images that are used all throughout the Scriptures, especially light and darkness, always used to, one on the one hand, characterize truth and righteousness, and on the other hand, darkness, error, and sin. Look at Psalm 36. If you look at verses 5 and 6, you'll find some words that have been put in so many songs that'll look familiar to you. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O Lord. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. All these things about God and even delight in life, where does it come from? It comes from the one who is the source of life. It comes from the one who gives light and truth and holiness. It comes from Jesus Christ. And there's so many people out there looking for meaning and purpose. And even those aren't my favorite phrases because lots of those end up just being self-centered. I'm looking for something for me. And we find out it's not about me at all. It's about the one who, where life came from. And when I get that straight, then I'll find meaning and purpose. It's almost backwards. When you, when you find Christ, you'll find all those other things. But so many people, they think it's about different things. So many people, they're just pursuing pleasure at whatever cost, and it doesn't matter who or what might get in the way. Some people, they look for meaning or purpose in things that we would say are good, good things, things like family, things like a, a job or a career or a vocation. None of those things are wrong, but they're a terrible place to look for ultimate satisfaction and, and meaning. A couple of my kids lately, uh, you know how kids sometimes the things they use as toys aren't toys at all, right? My kids lately, one of their favorite toys is one of those like 
extendable dust, duster things that you can use to reach the high and hard to reach places. My wife bought one that you know, extends out to six feet. Well, my kids are having a blast playing with it, right? My, my three-year-old, Mac, you know, he took the dust things off and it almost looks like a propeller at the end. And so he, he thinks it's an airplane and he'll walk around the house shh, flying with it. Even this morning he wakes up and it fell off his bed and the first thing is he's crawling under his bed. Dad, yeah, airplane, right? And getting it out, right? My daughter, she sleeps in a loft bed, so there's no way to reach the light switch from where she is. So one night I'm, I'm tucking her into bed, and she's sitting there, and she's got a book she's going to look at before she falls asleep. She's like, hey, Dad, check this out. Boom, she pulls out like the dust handle, right? Look how I'm going to turn off my light when I'm done, and extends it out of her bed to flip the light switch. Now, I'm glad none of them are using it to beat each other with. That would be a total misuse of it. And those other things, I mean, I guess they're a valid creative use for it, but it's not what it was made for, right? How many people are living life in the same way? I mean, some people are just using their life to beat up on others and get as much as they can for themselves. But other people, they've come up with something and you're like, okay, family, that's good. A, a career, yeah, that's, that's great, but that's not what life was made for. Life was made for you to know the one who gave you life. Life was made for you to know Jesus and through him to be reconciled to God the Father. In him is life. That is what we need. And, and he gives light. He is the source of truth. He is the source of what is right and good and holy. And we need to look, for him, look to him for those two. Another familiar verse we see this imagery in is Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus, I, you, you, you can't go, you know, sit down with him and have a conversation this afternoon face to face because he's ascended to the Father, but he has left us the truth. Even Colossians 3.16 refers to the scriptures as the word of Christ. Do we seek the light that comes from God's word? Because we need moral clarity. We need direction. I mean, when I grew up, Video games were in this stage where they were, they were changing. I mean, remember Pong? Now, to be clear, that was well before my childhood, but remember Pong? You got like these simple two-dimensional things. Or even when I was a little kid, you know, you got Super Mario. It's just two-dimensional. To go forward, you, you just you, you go to the right. I'm just moving that way. That's my only option. Well, at some point in my childhood, it started to switch from two-dimensional to three-dimensional. And for a kid, that was cool. Because now it wasn't just go forward or go back. It's like, I've got this whole world to explore. I can go straight. I can go left, right, backwards, up, down. This is pretty cool, right? But then things got a lot more complicated. And you'd buy some of these games and to even understand what you were supposed to do because there was so much you could explore. You needed to like buy the game and buy a book that told you how to play the game, right? Because I, where am I supposed to go? And you, you know, you get these people, they'd put out the unauthorized version of the instructions, but what you wanted was the people that made the game, how are they telling me it's supposed to be played? Well, life is not two-dimensional. Have you noticed? Life is complicated. We live in a world where there's so many choices you need to make. There's so many things to think through. You need direction. Well, guess what? The guy who made life, he wrote a book. He gave us instructions. He is the light, and we need to seek him because we haven't talked about it much, especially at this church plant, but Compass Bible Church has a theme verse. And if you're there in Psalm 36, just flip over a couple pages to Psalm 43. 
this is kind of our, our prayer of, of how God would use our church. Psalm 43, verse 3, the psalmist prays, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. We pray that God would use our church as a source of light and truth because we get that in the Bible. And that's why our first distinctive is, hey, the Bible is always going to be central because this is what Jesus has given us to look to. It is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. One thing I see over and over again doing ministry is people that say, yeah, I love Jesus. I want to follow him. And they have a very casual, very infrequent relationship with God's word in their own lives. God has given us this light in a dark world and they leave it on the shelf. And then they still are asking questions. Well, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do here? And I'm like, how much time are we spending in this? How much time are we taking that lamp and shining it into our lives so that we can see God's will For us, we need to look to Christ for direction. Not to our opinions, not to our feelings, not even always to our our friends, and certainly not to the culture. We need to look to the light that Jesus Christ has shined for us through his word. Look to Jesus for meaning and for direction. Because he is the light. Now verse 5 tells us some more about that light in the next two phrases in our passage this morning. It says that the light shines in the darkness and that the darkness has not overcome it. It's light imagery. Again, Jesus is going to use it. I am the light of the world. Next month with Christmas time, you'll be, somebody's going to quote Isaiah 9. Those who lived in darkness have seen a great light and upon them the light has shone for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then that next phrase, the darkness has not overcome it. I mean, just think of that for a second as just a statement of reality, right? The light will conquer the darkness. You're going to go into a room in your house tonight, and it's going to be dark, and you're going to flip a switch, and the light and the dark are going to have this intense struggle, and we'll see who wins. Is that how it works? No, you're going to flip the switch and the light's going to come on and the darkness is going to flee because where the light shines, the darkness cannot exist. And none of you have in your house a dark switch that you're going to flip and all of a sudden a source of darkness comes out. No, this isn't some cosmic struggle between you know, two equally strong forces. No, the light will cast out the darkness and the light of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. So point number two, what we want to do as we think about this truth is we want to confidently follow an unstoppable Savior. Confidently follow an unstoppable Savior. He is the light. He shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, and the darkness will not overcome it. And there's a part of us that's tempted right now to say, Amen. Praise Jesus Christ. But I think if we're honest, there's a part of us that kind of looks around at ourselves, looks around the room, looks around the world, and then we kind of look up at the proverbial scoreboard, so to speak, and we're like, I don't know, it seems like the darkness is putting up some points. It seems like the darkness is winning some victories, Pastor. How does that mesh with what we're seeing? And that could be in a variety of ways. Maybe you're just looking in the mirror, right? Not one person in this room 
can look back from last Sunday when we gathered to church to this Sunday and say, nailed it. Perfect this week, pastor. Didn't say one word that didn't honor Christ. Didn't think one thought that dishonored Christ. Didn't do one thing that I regret that I wish I could do over again. No, every single one of us. I'm sure we look back and say, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have felt that, right? We still see sin, darkness in our own lives. And I don't, some people would want to try to teach to you that, hey, you can become perfect in this life. I don't see that in scripture and I certainly don't, I've still yet to meet any of those perfect people walking around. There's still struggle in our lives. It's not nonstop victory and you may ask, why doesn't God just do that? I'm saved, boom, you're like Jesus. Why is there still this struggle? And if you really care about becoming like Christ, you're going to experience that frustration even more when you see sin in your life. But I mean, we look maybe away from the mirror for a second and we look at our society and it seems like darkness is somewhat on the move, right? It feels like we are watching our society lose its mind right in front of our eyes every single day. God in Isaiah 5 speaks words of judgment against the nation of Israel and he says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put, here's our imagery, darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Well, we live in a world that thinks, it's, that thinks it knows what's up. That they think they know better than God. And our culture has lost a sense of right and wrong. I mean, let's just be brutally honest. If our culture can't tell the difference between male and female, how in the world are we going to tell the difference between right and wrong? We're not. And in fact, we're going to start flipping it completely upside down where our society is going to start calling things that are evil, hey, that's good. And they're going to start calling things that are good, hey, that's bad. And that's exactly what we see happening in our world. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, starts to talk about what the wrath of God looks like when it's poured out on a society. And when you read from there to the end of the chapter, it's like you're reading a history of the United States of America over the last 100 years, where it starts with they're going to reject God as the creator. Then it's going to move on to all kinds of sexual immorality. And then it's going to get even more twisted into homosexuality. And then it's going to just end in all kinds of lawlessness. That's us, right? We rejected God as a creator. Then there's things you can read about in history books called the sexual revolution. And we're, we've been living for the last 10 or even more years in the homosexual revolution. And we're starting to see all just kinds of lawlessness in our society. We look and it's like, uh, I'm seeing some darkness. And not just in our society, but we look at around at the tragic things that happen in our culture. Yesterday, I spoke at a funeral for a woman who was 39 years old whose life was cut short by cancer. The day before that, we were reading in the newspaper about teenagers that were shot at their high school and killed. And every day we see natural disasters, sickness, war, taking the lives of people all over the world. So the light shines in the darkness and the darkness hasn't overcome it. I don't know. I see a lot of darkness. Well, let's think through those things. None of those things stand a chance against the light of God's truth. 
We started by talking about your own sin and how frustrating that can be. Well, if you are truly saved and Jesus Christ is at work in your life, sure, you, you still see sin. There's still areas of growth, but man, I hope there's a whole lot of light that you can see. You might, might not know off the top of your head who John Newton is. Well, you've probably heard the song Amazing Grace. He's the guy that wrote it. And he prayed this. He said, I am not what I ought to be. And I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. And if you're a Christian, we should all be saying, yeah, I, I agree. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. See the light of God at work in your life? Can you say, hey, yes, I'm not who I want to be, but I am not what I was. And God's grace is working in my life. That's the light. The light of God shining through the darkness. And as Christians, we shouldn't have this ho-hum attitude when it comes to sin. And yet, sure, we might not believe we'll be perfect until heaven, but that doesn't mean we should just, well, I'm just going to stumble-bumble my way into the kingdom, right? We should expect God is going to work in me. God is going to grow me. I will experience victory over sin in my life because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And we look at our society and we wonder, is the truth going to survive? And the answer is absolutely yes. One, because it's the truth and that's what it does. And number two, it always has. The truth has never been killed. I mean, it's like the parable that Jesus tells of the house on the rock or the house on the sand. Well, our society is building a big old palace on the sand. And the rain's going to come down and the floods are going to come up and the house on the sand is going to go splat, as the old Sunday school song says. But the rock of God's truth will always remain. And as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid of sharing our faith. We shouldn't be afraid of living for the Lord because we are on the side that will when you want to be on the right side of history, then you should be on the side of Jesus Christ, the life, the light, and his word. That's going to be the right side of history. And even it has. When John was writing this, when he's writing these triumphant words, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He had some reasons to look around and say, well, there's some bad things going on. I mean, he was one of the 12 disciples, Judas, he he bolts, right? There's 11 of them left. John is the only one that isn't martyred, right? He's looking around and where are all of his friends who he started out with? Well, by this point, surely most of them are dead because they've been killed for their faith. And what we learn from church history is John even, they tried to get rid of him. They tried to burn him alive in oil. And when that didn't work, they shipped him out to some rock in the Aegean Sea, the island of Patmos, where he writes the book of Revelation. But even then, John knows, yeah, they're not going to stop the light. Think about the, the book of Acts, right? When we talk about, hey, as a church, wouldn't we love to see things like the book of Acts happen? We're like, oh, yeah, I want some of that. 3,000 3, people getting saved and getting baptized. I want to see that. Let's pray for that, pastor. What about Acts chapter 5, when the leaders of the church are thrown in jail and threatened? Or Acts chapter 7, where one of the deacons in the church is killed for his faith. And then chapter 8, where the persecution gets so intense that the church has to scatter everywhere. Or chapter 12, when another leader of the church is 
beheaded and another one is put in jail. Do we want to sign up for that too? But even that could not stop the light because the story of the book of Acts, yes, it's a story of persecution, but it is a story of victory. That's why it's good for us even to know things about church history and see how the truth of God has endured. I don't know what your political perspective is, but if you think that President Trump is bad or you think that President Obama was bad, let me introduce you to this guy named Emperor Nero, right? Ever heard of him? I mean, he makes any president that we've ever had look, you know, amazing compared to him. He was a twisted, depraved individual who persecuted Christians. He would literally light up Christians and use them as torches at his garden parties. You want to talk about a dark society? That was it. But could that stop the word of God? Absolutely not. And persecution came in waves over the first few hundred years of the church, but the church not only survived all of that, it thrived. The, the, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church, and more and more people began to believe. In history classes, they want to try to tell you, yeah, well, Christianity was spread by imperialism and empire and war. And you should say, no, not at least for the first 300 years. It was spread by people who gave their lives for the truth. And they tried to put out the light, but they couldn't because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man who was a disciple of the Apostle John, the one who wrote this gospel, a man named Polycarp. And he lived in an age where the Roman Empire wasn't really seeking and destroying Christians as it did sometimes. It was more of a don't ask, don't tell policy when it came to Christianity. As long as, you know, you weren't out there, you know, you'd, you'd be all right. But occasionally they'd find somebody and, it, you know, they'd be outed as a Christian and boom, they'd be all over. And that's what happened to Polycarp. They found out what he was doing. They found out where he was and they dragged him before the authorities. And the authorities gave him, these are your options renounce Christ and profess allegiance to the emperor or be burned at the stake. And he said, for 86 years I have served Christ and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? That is the light shining in the darkness. And when they threatened him again with burning, he said, I'd rather take that fire than burn in eternal fire. He knew what the truth was was, and he lived it out, and the church flourished. When we talk about church history, I mean, it might be our kids or our grandkids who are going to read and write books about what's going on in places like China right now or Iran right now, where then there is persecution, but the church is thriving. It's growing as more people see the emptiness of the systems they've been taught and the truth of Jesus Christ. And we might look at our society, and we might say, I'm looking at the future, and I'm not looking at some crystal ball, but what I can tell, it's getting worse for Christians. And persecution is coming. And as Christians, we should say, bring it on. It's not going to stop the light. It's not going to hurt the light. It's only going to make the light shine brighter for the cause of Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't be scared. I think as Christians, when we ask the question, well, why do we get scared of the future and persecution? I think the brutal reality is not so much that we're scared of the gospel being stopped. It's that we're scared that our life will become less comfortable, right? That's what we're scared of. And we don't get so fired up about a verse like this in John 1, 5, because we're like, well, I kind of like the status quo. Can we just keep it like it is right now? We have a prayer meeting on the first and third Friday morning of every month. And the first thing we do every week is we 
every time was we pray for revival. I wonder if we were given the choice, you can see revival or you can live a comfortable life, what we in this room would, would choose. Because so many times what we've seen with revival is, well, it came amidst persecution. It came amidst struggle, but the light shines through the darkness. Where are we this morning? Do we have so much confidence in the truth of Jesus Christ that we can say, it doesn't matter what the culture's doing. It doesn't matter what happens to me. The light's going to shine. And that is what my life is all about. We don't need to be afraid of our society. Or then when we look at the tragic things that happen in the world, the sickness, the disease, the shootings, whatever it might be, we need to be reminded that Jesus is the light. And the Bible makes it clear, Jesus Christ is coming back. And right now, like Romans 8 says, we're groaning with creation. Like a woman in labor, at all the things that are broken and messed up in this world. But Jesus is coming back. Jesus cannot be defeated. And we see that, really, John's kind of giving away the ending of the book here at the beginning. When we talk about tragedy, the greatest tragedy that ever happened, John writes about it. It's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That the Word who was in the beginning, the Word that created the world, the Word that was God, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us was nailed to a cross. And He died for our sin. That's not where the Gospel of John ends. Jesus Christ rose again. The darkness cannot overcome the light. And Jesus Christ, He is coming back. And the light will shine in such a way that the darkness will go away and it will never come back. So we wrap up this morning. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And let's get a little bit into the Christmas spirit a little early. Luke chapter 1, verse 76. And we're in the middle of a song or a prophecy that's being given by Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist. And now his son has been born, and he is speaking prophetically about his son in Luke 1, 76. And he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. And look how it refers to Jesus here. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. The coming of Christ was compared to the sun rising and driving the darkness of the night away. Jesus Christ, he has ascended to the Father, but... He is coming back. The sun is going to rise again. And when we look at what seems like the darkness and the tragedy that happens all around us, we know it will not win because the sunrise is coming. Or to quote another Christmas song that I'm sure we'll be singing in a few weeks, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the third verse says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace! Hail the Son of Righteousness! Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. 
born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And someday we'll sing songs like that, saying glory to the king who has returned. Glory to the light that will shine for eternity. He is life. He is light. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not. No, it will never overcome it. Let's pray together. God, we come to you this morning, and God, we praise you for life and light that can be found in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you are, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that he depends on no one so that we all may depend on him. God, help us to look to him for help, for meaning, for direction. God, we do live in a confusing world where we're told so many different things, whether that's by just even our own feelings and our own thoughts and the culture around us. Thank you that you've spoken clearly to us through Jesus Christ, through his word. Help us to seek those things. God, make us a truth, uh, sorry, a, a church that is hungry for the truth. God, a church that hungers for your word every single day. And God, may we be a church that is confident as we should be, Lord, that the light will never be extinguished, that your light will shine. And God, would you please use us to shine that light in our valley, in our nation, around the world, God. Use us, we pray. Set people free from death and darkness through Jesus Christ. God, let us see revival. Lord, even if it costs us our comfort, even if there's sacrifice involved, even if it's in the midst of persecution, God, shine your light through us, we pray. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.